So uh, tensions are up. Um, that's my read. Not a scientific poll, but uh, there's a handful of data sources that seem to be confirming that. There was an article in Toronto's Globe and Mail this week talking about all kinds of people who are suffering from what they're calling COVID burnout. Uh, lots of stories. The one I remember about a, a guy whose uh, eyebrows fell out. <laughs> there was another uh, an account, uh, Citigroup uh, has now come out to try and help their employees. There's now Zoom-free Fridays, which sounds like a great idea. Uh, even Goldman Sachs got in on it. Uh, First-year investment bankers were complaining about 100-hour work weeks, and they've agreed to dial it back to uh, 95 hours <laughs> a week. So, um, look, I'd, I'd actually noticed before uh, before these reports, I had been noticing and, and sensing that tension was climbing uh, from a handful of more personal sources, emails, conversations with friends, things that I was observing going on in the community in the church. So just to be clear, when, when I'm talking about tensions going up, I'm not, I'm not talking so much about national and global events. Uh, I mean, there is certainly that. There's always that. There, the news is always full of stories about the fact that we live in a world that is broken. Uh, this week saw another tragic shooting in Colorado. Uh, we have a border crisis. There's ongoing political acrimony and gridlock. Several governors are fighting for their political life. Myanmar and North Korea remain problem zones. Uh, many people seem determined to ascribe the worst intentions to those who don't agree with them. Cancel culture is still thriving. There's, there's all of that that we, get, that we see in the news. Things are actually, one of the things that sort of got my attention is things are sort of so bad in that sense that I now know a growing number of people who are choosing um, to not pay attention at all. And I'm not talking about people who've sort of never paid attention. I mean, there are people who just aren't interested in the news, don't track it that closely. And I'm not talking about people who have said they have not been able to stay up with what's going on because their life is so out of control and they're working so many hours and that's the way, you know, this pandemic has struck them that they're just that far behind. I'm talking about people who normally were very dialed in on the news who have now said, I'm just simply not purposely, deliberately not paying attention. I'm going out of my way to not know what is going on so that I can sleep at night. I have one friend uh, who for five years <laughs> has not known what is going on. He made me promise that I would never talk about any current events. I've, I've occasionally sort of, you know, tweaked his nose a little bit and said, you know, I just can't believe that you don't care that California fell into the Pacific or, you know, I'll, I'll mention something else egregious that obviously didn't happen. But he just said he was uh, not going to pay attention. He couldn't he couldn't do that anymore. So I'm not, I'm not talking about that so much. There is that. I'm just noticing that, uh, that, that people are more agitated. People are more um, frustrated. And it's almost as if very recently we crossed some sort of line and people said, enough, I'm done with this. I'm not going to be nice anymore. Um, a year ago, Shortly after the pandemic hit, uh, Tim Keller hosted, uh, he's a pastor in uh, New York City, and he hosted a, a national Zoom webinar for pastors. It was like one of the first times I 
uh, got on Zoom in that kind of a context. And, and basically what he said was that when 9-11 hit, shortly after 9-11, he got a phone call from a pastor in Oklahoma City who said, you need to pace yourself. So this, this pastor in Oklahoma City uh, had been pastoring a church when Timothy McVeigh had blow, blown up the uh, Alfred Murrah building and uh, 100, I think 160-some people were killed and uh, almost 700 people were injured. And that, that pastor said, look, for, for most of the next year, he said, we were, life here was a flurry of ministry activity, all kinds of gatherings and prayer meetings and churches working together and all kinds of activity. And he said it, it was, there was really almost something uh, captivating and, and catalyzing and motivating about what went on. And he said, and that happened for about a year. And then he said, uh, and then it's as if a switch got, got flipped and everybody started to burn out. So he said to Keller, who was pastoring in New York City, he says, look, you've got to understand, this is after 9-11, you've got to understand how this is likely going to play out and you have to pace yourself. And Keller said that he had uh, ignored the warning. He felt like he had the kinds of personal devotional habits and practices and disciplines and the kind of friends and other things that, that it wouldn't happen to him. And so he said uh, they had, in essence, ignored the advice and he said, and in retrospect, he was absolutely right. There was something captivating and there was a lot of activity and there was lots of frontline ministry to do and there's all kinds of things that needed to be rebuilt and restructured and all kinds of, all kinds of that and he said, and that lasted for uh, about, an, uh, about a year. And he says, many, in some cases, many really good things happened for about a year. And he said, and then everybody started to fade. So you might remember a few years ago, I asked Nathan Clayton. Nathan and his, um, his family attend Christ Church. As a matter of fact, uh, their son, I mean, the, the whole family is sort of musical. And they've been involved with worship events. But their son... So Northwestern student is helping to lead the, the Christchurch Vernon Hills launch um, uh, on their worship, heading up their worship stuff. So Nathan, uh, who's a professor at North Park, had been a pastor in New York City for three weeks when 9-11 hit. He was downtown and everybody, at the, it was a smaller church, but everybody at the church knew he had a family member or some sort of relative, some friend who had been uh, killed in 9-11, and he, I asked him, I said, so was it, what was your experience with all of that? Did, did, it, did it go well, or did you have energy for the first year, and then things sort of, um, you sort of hit the wall? And he thought for a little bit, and he said, yeah, that's, that's actually uh, a pretty good way to describe what happened. So I had at least um, in pencil circled uh, this month to be aware that things may begin to unravel and when things seem to me to cross some sort of line, I thought, okay, well, this is, uh, this is not... Um, this is not unsurprising. Now, just to be clear, I'm not certain that th this is what's going on. Obviously, these things are hard to, to analyze, but I will note that there is there seems to be growing anger in the system. Consequently, it doesn't take much for um, things to begin to escalate. I also know that there is an opportunity here. 
And it is an opportunity uh, for those of us who know Christ to um, be aware of this, uh, to lean more deeply into the love and the grace of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ, to realign ourselves and to stay the course. Uh, I also know that, uh, <laughs> that we will make it. You can make it. You can make it. I, I want to assure you, God has everything under control. This ends well. If you are in Christ, I do not know what happens between now and the end, but what I know is, and this is a game-changing truth, what I know is, that, uh, that this all ends well. Our eternal future is secure in the hands of Jesus Christ, and that changes everything. I also know that 2,000 years ago, uh, as we entered this week, things were very tense, and uh, Jesus chose to love and serve. And I think there is something that we can learn uh, from that particular moment. Uh, so I'm thinking, of course, about Holy Week. We're in a series called I Am, and uh, this is not one of the I Am statements, although there is a, there's something like that that happens during the week when Pilate grills Jesus and says, you know, are you the king of the Jews? Uh, Jesus doesn't answer it with an I Am statement, but, uh, but uh, I, I wanted, because it's Holy Week, I wanted us to think about all this, and, and then as uh, I sort of went a different direction. I don't, I, <laughs> I don't like to do that. I don't like to, um, to do that, although I, very, I was very appreciative and, um, and thankful to the Lord that, that the um, need to pivot on the sermon came early in the week. I really wrestle when I, um, you know, it, it becomes Saturday and I sense the Lord is telling me that I've <laughs> done the wrong, I've written the wrong message. I'm like, yeah, I... <laughs> Or even later than that, occasionally, not many times. It's like, yeah, no, I don't, I, I don't do spontaneous stuff. That's not me. But uh, so this, uh, this, this week I felt like I needed to go in a different direction. And the passage that was read out of uh, John 12 already, uh, that passage reports on what is a pretty well-known story. The Jews held this annual religious Festival. They had been doing this for 1,300 years. It celebrated their deliverance from Egyptian captivity, which had happened during Moses' day. We read about this in the book of Exodus. So this is the, you know, the burning bush the, and call of Moses, the, the ten plagues, Pharaoh, parting of the Red Sea, all of that. So this annual Passover celebration uh, that the Jews had been celebrating was there was was in essence their Fourth of July party. It was a reminder of how God had liberated them, delivered them, how they had had uh, secured their uh, independence under the leadership of Moses. And so every year they flooded into Jerusalem, and uh, lots of people. The city swelled in numbers, and they had this big festival that led up to the Passover celebration that took place um, there in Jerusalem. So at that time, they rehearsed the events that Moses had led them through, again recorded back in the book of Exodus. So they took a, a lamb, a one-year-old male unblemished lamb, which was symbolic of Jesus. They didn't know it at the time, but at the Last Supper, Jesus makes it clear 
that that was always what was going on. At the Last Supper, he changes the Passover celebration into communion. So they were to take this perfect, innocent lamb. Jesus, who is the Lamb of God, will be that. But they were to take this lamb, and at a certain time, 3 o'clock in the afternoon, they were to slaughter it, careful not to break any of its bones. And then they took the blood of the lamb, and they painted over the doorpost so that when the angel of death came uh, into the city, this is the 10th plague, when the angel of death came in, he would see that... um, that innocent life had already been offered up for guilty people, that, that an innocent third party had died so the guilty people could go free. And if the angel of death didn't see that, then he would require the death of the firstborn son, which is what happened to the Egyptians, including the Pharaoh. This is sort of the, the last thing that the Pharaoh would stand up against, and he says, okay, enough, I'm going to let the, the Jews go free. So, um, uh, for 1,300 years, this event had been repeated, and, and now it's, as, as we're making our way through the Gospels, now it's about to be repeated again. The John passage reports on Jesus entering into Jerusalem at the time of the Passover. However, this time it was different. This time it was actually the main event. This is what everything had been pointing to. So there's a lot of excitement here. So the city of Jerusalem probably held about 50,000 people at the time. It's now got three, four, five. Some people say there's two million people there. I've, I've been to Jerusalem. I can't imagine that number could be anywhere close to being true. But, but the city is packed. Everybody's seeing family and friends. Everybody is, uh, everybody is sort of, it, it's, a, it's the big day of the year. Everybody's excited about that. So on the one hand, it's a really good time, but on the other hand, it's a very uh, frustrating and depressing time because uh, while they're celebrating that God delivered them from their Egyptian captors, they are at this point occupied territory under the, the heavy arm, the heavy law of the Romans. And so that's something very odd, very ironic, about the fact that they're celebrating their liberation, but they're not liberated. And uh, this whole thing also reminds them uh, that the Messiah that they have been waiting for has not materialized. So this is, um, this is not a, a, a completely fun holiday. Now, I have been, I've been at Christ Church for over 20 years, and most Palm Sundays, I have uh, walked you through this story. So some of you know it quite well. And you know, for instance, because I've, I've made these points over and over, at this moment, uh, the gospel makes it clear that interest in Jesus has peaked. So if you read through the gospels, you see that Jesus teaches and people are amazed at his authority. Jesus heals, people come flooding in. Jesus feeds people, people come flooding in. So, so the, the numbers would go high uh, of people following Jesus. He would then talk about what it actually looked like to be his disciple, and lots of people would walk away. And then it would go again, and it would just sort of, it was, it was sort of ebbing and flowing, and it's climbing. But now as he's coming into Jerusalem, he's, he's back. Everybody's talking about him. They're looking for a Messiah. Vegas uh, bookies have said, this is likely the guy. Jesus is coming into Jerusalem at the time of the Passover. Everybody is stoked. The question becomes... 
will he actually show up? And if he shows up, what will he do? So it wasn't clear that he was going to show up, um, but he does. And that's part of the whole story. He does. Then the question would become, uh, what is he going to do? And, and how is he going to carry this out? So at this time, I mean, it's sort of hard to imagine, but you've got to go back before Facebook posts and social media and even, even newspapers and, and with pictures. Most people did not have, did not have any idea who, what Jesus looked like. And so Jesus could have easily snuck into Jerusalem, but he chooses not to do that. So uh, Jerusalem is on high alert. Pilate is there, and Pilate is there. Um, he's the governor of the area. Pilate is there to make certain that no one sort of foments this, this tinderbox of, uh, of patriotic and revolutionary zeal that happens every Passover. Pilate is there, and so people are waiting for Jesus. So remember, the, the, the Roman Empire is all reports up to, to Caesar. He's in charge. Caesar rules over the Roman Empire, which is massive. It's got, you know, parts of it's all the Middle East and parts of North Africa and Asia and Europe. So he rules over the Roman Empire with this convoluted uh, menagerie of different government forms. In the Middle East, in this Palestine area, Israel, this, this area, he's, he's got a king. He had appointed a king, Herod, who's king of the Jews. He's not a Jew, and the Jews don't really accept him. But there's this king. There's also a governor, Pilate, who he had appointed, who is a Roman and who has the military forces. And then additionally, they allowed the Jews to have this, this uh, council, the Sanhedrin, that was made up of religious leaders. So all of these different people are in play. Pilate, who is, you know, the most zealously accountable back uh, to Rome, Pilate didn't live in Jerusalem, but he's come to Jerusalem at this time because he wants to be certain that he's there if anything goes wrong. If there is this, you know, this revolution by the Jews, they tried to revolt many times before, if there's this revolution by the Jews to try and overthrow the Romans. So um, when, <laughs> when Jesus comes in, there's a sense in which he could easily sort of just walk into Jerusalem. Nobody would know. But that's not what happens on Palm Sunday, right? What Jesus does as he approaches Jerusalem is he stages a parade. And uh, he, he goes out of his way to draw attention to himself. And so that's the John uh, 12 passage. And, and, uh, and so he sits on a donkey, which is all very symbolic because um, because Solomon, who had been king a thousand years earlier, had ridden into Jerusalem for his coronation on a donkey, uh, as opposed to a horse, as opposed to a steed, as opposed to something majestic, he had gone in uh, this way. There was a prophecy in the Old Testament that said that the future Messiah was going to, you know, do that same thing. Uh, so, so Jesus does this not lost on the people. Um, the people throw their coats down for the donkey to walk on. They're waving palm branches, which is also symbolic. Palm fronds were, 
uh, called hosannas, by the way, but palm fronds were sort of the symbol of the, of the Jewish nation during the intertestamental period. So between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New, there was this 400-year period. And there was, there was some period in there uh, where the Jews had their independence. And uh, there had been a revolt uh, against, the, against the, the Greeks and the other people that had uh, tried to overthrow them. And uh, Judas Maccabeus and others had led this revolt. And while the Jews had their independence, the palm frond was sort of their symbol and it was on their coins. And so as they're waving these palm fronds, that, that's almost, that's a political act uh, that is saying, yes, you are, you know, you are the one that is going to help us overthrow the Romans, you're the one that's coming. And so Jesus marches in uh, at a time when the, the, the pitch in the room, in the city, is, uh, is very heightened. And uh, he stages this parade which advertises the, the political power that he has. I mean, if Pilate is watching, it's clear. Jesus has just put Pilate on notice. <laughs> I can call this revolt. And we, were, we will overwhelm you. Now, the Romans would win in the end. Uh, but, but it would take weeks for there to be uh, reserve troops called for at that time. So Pilate and his men would be overwhelmed if Jesus turns the crowd against them. And so um, Pilate is, it's clear to Pilate that, uh, that Jesus has got the power. But... Much to Pilate's relief, Jesus marches, parades into Jerusalem on a Sunday, and then nothing happens. And then on Monday, instead of continuing to foment the crowd, Jesus sort of makes this big left turn, and he goes to the temple. And now, instead of sort of advertising to the Romans that he's got power to overthrow them, he goes to the temple, and he sort of in essence, gets in the face of the, of the Jewish religious leaders and says, <laughs> he's in the courtyard of the temple and there he's teaching. Crowds are coming to hear him. He's healing people and he's forgiving sins. These are the things that are supposed to happen inside the temple. You can't forgive sins. No one's, no one's allowed to forgive sins. That's, that's what the priest does inside the temple. Jesus is right there. He's forgiving sins. He's healing people. He's saying, look, I'm the new temple. I'm the new nexus of God and man on earth. I'm the one that's pulling all this, the, 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 pulling everything together. I'm the one you need to be paying attention to. This infuriates the, uh, the, the religious leaders. By the way, he'd also gone through the, their temple courtyard and overturned the tables and, you know, and lamb blasted them for, uh, for charging um, usurious rates on, on selling these uh, the sacrifices to the people that had come to offer a sacrifice for the time of the Passover. So, um, so <laughs> these things are going on. Now, um, you might also know, if you know this story, as many of you do, you might also know that, that of course, the big symbolism here is, is not just that Jesus is fulfilling prophecy by riding a donkey, coming in the footsteps of David, and, it's, and it's, it's not that he's making this claim to be the temple. Jesus is making the claim to be uh, the sacrifice to save us 
from our sins. Jesus is making the claim to be the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Uh, Jesus is, is making the biggest, most important, perfect claims of all time. And, and the triumphal entry and the Passover and all of this, is, it, it's all just, it's a crescendo up to the, the, the crucifixion of Christ as our substitute on the cross to bear the wrath of God for our sins and then to conquer and to defeat death. So, um, let me, you, you know all that. Let me, let me go and uh, underline two things that I want to be sure you get today. First of all, again, at this contentious, unsettled moment uh, in our country and in the world, I want to remind you that what Jesus did, he did for you. I want to be certain that you are encouraged, that you are relieved, that you rejoice, that you relax. I want you to know that, that God had a plan for your restoration and mine, and he fulfilled it, and it changes absolutely everything. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. That is, the whole Bible is, is led up to this, this moment of Jesus Christ on the cross for you and for me, it changes everything. Secondly, I want you to see something that Jesus does here that you might not have seen previously. And I want it to be uh, a, a challenge, an encouragement, uh, an example for you. So, you, if you're here, you hear me say all the time that Jesus is not simply a coach, a mentor, a guide, a moral reformer, right? He's not simply though, he's not simply a teacher. But he is all of that. He is principally, I believe, he is principally the Son of God, the Messiah, the Savior of the world. And so what Jesus does uh, 2,000 years ago on the cross does not need to be done again. Um, so we, we add nothing to the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Hear that. But also, hear me out, Jesus is our example. Jesus is our guide. And one of the things that Jesus does here, I think we need to see. So um, we need to see that Jesus is the one that had all the power and that he used that power for the benefit of others. And Jesus calls on us, I believe, to follow that lead, to love and care for others. He brought a radically new ethic. He turned everything upside down. He used his power to take pain out of the system, out of the equation. So let me just again recast this, the story, the event, uh, shining some light on power. Let me note that Jesus advertised to the Romans that he was the one that had all the political power. He says to Pilate, in, not, not in, in so many words, but he makes it clear to Pilate that he has the political power, Pilate doesn't. Then when he goes to the temple, he is, he is making it clear to the Jewish religious leaders that he is claiming he has all the power. 
He has the ability to forgive sins. He has the ability to answer prayer. He has the ability to heal. He is the temple. The temple was the place where God and man would intersect. He is the new temple. He is making that claim in a big, bold way. If we go further into the story, we will see that uh, at the time that Jesus is arrested in the garden, so this is after he's been betrayed and the, and, uh, the, you know, the soldiers show up uh, with Judas to arrest Jesus and Peter takes a sword and he, you know, he, he takes a swing at one of the soldiers and he cuts off his ear and Jesus heals him. And then Jesus says to Peter, uh, in words of rebuke, he goes, do you, <laughs> in essence, do you think, Peter, that if I needed this kind of help, I would rely on you? Do you not, do you not understand? I could call down a legion of angels to defend myself. If that's what we were going to do here, I have got all the power. I've got all the support. I've got all the protection. I've got all the offensive swords and defensive shields that I need. I've got that. But that's not the way this is going to play out. So, um, so we need to understand that Jesus is advertising his power. And then he's advertising throughout the week. And then when we get into the, the, his interaction with Pilate, it becomes clear if you go back and you read this again, that um, Jesus is the one who has peace, Jesus is the one who is in control. Pilate is not. They bring, they bring Jesus to Pilate and they say, you know, you got to kill this guy. He, you know, all the things that he's done wrong. Pilate says, I don't want to kill him. He, I don't think he's done anything wrong. He sends him to Herod, the king. Herod sends him back, mocks him and sends him back. So then he tries uh, going to the people and saying, look, I'm going to let somebody go. It's that day. I let somebody go. Why don't I let this guy go? And they said, no, 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 that's, that's not it. And so he's feeling a little stuck here. So he has Jesus uh, whipped and sends him away. And then he, he interfaces with Jesus. Jesus comes back after all of this, and he interfaces with Jesus again. And they have this conversation uh, recorded um, later in the Gospel of John. And, uh, and, and the, the religious authorities remind Pilate that Jesus has claimed to be the Son of God. And it says Pilate was even more afraid. In verse 9, we are told that he went back outside, uh, back inside the palace, and he says to Jesus, who are you? Where did you come from? But Jesus gave him no answer. And he says, do you not realize, if you refuse to speak to me, that, that I am the one that has the power to set you free? And Jesus says, <laughs> Pilate, you have no power except the power that was granted to you um, from above. Pilate is agitated. Jesus is not. Jesus knows uh, how this is going to unfold. Jesus knows that, 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 that this has been the plan. Jesus knows uh, what's going to unfold. And so uh, he is willing, because of his obedience to the Father, because of his love, uh, he is willing to lay down his life for us. And Pilate is the one who is so concerned. And I want you to see that in the kingdom of God, power is something that we are to handle carefully and steward and use it for the benefit of others. 
In the kingdom of God, we use power for the benefit of others. So discussions uh, about power have been going on for at least 3,000 years. And uh, we see these conversations recorded in the ancient Greeks, Plato and Socrates and Aristotle talk about what is power and who should have it and how they're supposed to dispense it. Uh, the Romans keep the conversations going. Cicero and others will write about power, political power and other power. Uh, of course, uh, Machiavelli will write about power in the prince and Lord Acton will issue his dictum, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts. Uh, absolutely. There's ongoing battles and tensions over power in Washington, D.C. right now and at the state level and everything else. We could spend all, we could spend not just the rest of today, we could spend the, the rest of the week, we could spend a month just looking at all the books that have been written about power, reciting all the different vantage points and perspectives and quotations that are famous about power. But from the vantage point of the Bible, uh, we need to understand that on the one hand, power is something that we are to be cautious about. It's one of the, it's one of the three character assassinations. Alongside of money and sex, power is, seems to be pretty consistently what uh, gets people undone. And so um, we need to be careful about it. However, on the other side, power is not seen as a bad thing. It's seen, as a, it's seen as something that can be very wonderful. It depends entirely upon what that power is used to do and who that power is used to serve. So let me make three observations here. Number one, you have more power than you realize. You have more power than you realize. We tend not to see the sort of the agency, the power that we have. Uh, we're finite beings. Uh, we are surrounded by problems. We can't fix all the problems. We are very aware of what power we don't have. We're often not aware of the power that we do have. But we have more power. You have more power than you know. Number two, power is hard to manage well. Acton was right. Power tends to corrupt. It tends to seduce and mislead. It can be used well, but it is hard to manage well. Number three, and here I, I, I pivot back to the opening, to the discussion about all the ways that things are unsettled and all the people that are burning out and all the frustrations that are out there. Uh, I want to say, I believe that the way forward, in large part, these aren't tactics, but this is just, this is the overall opportunity. The way forward out of this tense moment that is tense because of COVID and it's tense because of race and it's tense because of political acrimony and it's tense because of all kinds of other things, the way forward at this political moment is for those of us who know God to drink so deeply of the grace of Christ, to, to, to reflect so powerfully on the good news of the gospel, to be so encouraged and uplifted, to be so settled and peaceful that we can use our power for others, that we are free to serve, to give, to love, and to absorb some of the pain 
that is in the system. I desperately want you to focus on Jesus this week. I desperately want you to focus on the gospel this week. I definitely, desperately want you to marvel at what Jesus has done for you on your behalf. I want that to be uh, at the forefront. I want you to, to walk through the week with all the different events that are happening. I mean, we have uh, Wednesday, there's a Passover um, demonstration at the Highland Park campus. And on Friday, there's uh, several of the campuses have open communion with Stations of the Cross. And then uh, a couple of the campuses have Big Friday, uh, Good Friday uh, services. And uh, then we've got, then, you know, the next time we're back, it's Easter. And there's a sunrise service at the Lake Forest campus on the campus, not at the beach. The beach isn't open for, uh, for, for uh, us this year. But uh, we're, we're going to come back to celebrate the resurrection. And I want you to sort of walk through the week so you can appreciate what Christ has done. And it gets dark. And then, then it, you know, <laughs> and then we get, the, we get the opportunity to celebrate. But I don't want you to stop there. I want to invite you to take some of the anger and pain out of the system. There are people who are tired and short and who are likely to snap at you. There are people who are going to try and power up, that are going to try and dismiss or cancel. There's a lot of what I'm calling suboptimal behavior out there at this moment. This should not surprise us. Let me encourage you to take pain out of the system in any way you can, let me encourage you to love others, to serve others, and to not return anger with anger. This is countercultural advice. I'm, I'm aware of the advice that you're going to get in, in Globe and Mail. I'm aware of the advice you're going to get from Forbes. I'm aware of the advice of people that are going to say, we need to take a break, we need, to, we need a vacation, you need to see a therapist, you need a massage. I mean, all the different things that are people are saying right now to us. This is how you can make it through this particular tense moment. I'm not against any of that advice. <laughs> I just don't think it's the advice that we get from Christ. So I'm going to leave you with an image. And I got this from Miroslav Volf, the Croatian theologian and author. Uh, being from Croatia, he, of course, grew up in a, in a country that was always uh, uh, balkanized and, and at war and all kinds of pain and ugliness and death and other things. That, that was his... That was his background and his experience. And so he writes a lot about, about war. He writes a lot about hate. He writes a lot about uh, faith and violence. He writes about those kinds of topics. And, and um, he, he makes this remarkable observation that uh, trees are very prominent in Scripture. We've got them in the very first chapters of the Garden of Eden, and you've got them of various times in the book of Proverbs, the book of Psalms, and other things, the trees as, as being significant. But he notes that at the very end, Revelation 22.2 talks about the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. And he says, trees, uh, trees are, are known biologically to take the, you know, the carbon uh, dioxide out of the system and to turn back oxygen. And he says they, they do this not just for, <laughs> not for their benefit, they sort of do this for the common good. And, uh, and so I want to encourage you to think uh, like a tree. I want to encourage you, to challenge you at this moment when tensions are climbing, to focus on Jesus, to rest in the gospel, 
to be confident in God and his ability to deliver on his promises. This ends well. I also want to encourage you to think like a tree <laughs> and to take some of the poison out of the system because uh, we can absorb that given what Jesus has absorbed for us. Let me pray. Lord God, as we uh, stand here at the forefront of uh, this sacred week that is going to unfold before us, we marvel again at who you are and what you have done. And Lord Christ, we, we praise you. We thank you for your uh, amazing uh, service for the way that you absorbed our pain, our guilt, our sin. Help us to uh, lean into that, to marvel at that, to marvel at you. And uh, help us to follow your example, to be so um, um, relaxed in your uh, provision for us that we can share um, some of that grace with other people. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.